Temptation to lust is everywhere. I turn on the TV, temptation. I open my laptop, temptation. I go to the gym, temptation. It's inescapable. For a while, I never told anyone about what I looked at and what I did, but it ate me up inside. So I confessed. That seemed to work for a while. I thought I beat it, but the temptation kept returning and I kept giving in. I know how to get around all the computer accountability software I tried to protect myself with. All I've tried just doesn't work. I'm so angry at myself, so frustrated, so disappointed. But all my praying and repenting and confessing hasn't got me what I've wanted. I'm not free. During a time when my husband and I were in a stressful phase at home, I found myself growing closer to a male friend. This was someone I saw frequently, and it was easy to justify the friendship growing. Gradually, our conversation seemed more personal, sometimes even flirtatious. Getting this kind of attention was, well, it was exciting. Sometimes I would feel a twinge of guilt, but because nothing physical had happened, I tried to tell myself nothing was wrong. I was probably imagining things. The problem was, I was imagining things. I found myself thinking about this person more and more, even fantasizing about him, or wondering if he found me attractive. Something that was only in my head was getting out of control. From the time I was very little, I'd see magazines at the checkout at the grocery store about celebrities cheating on one another or someone getting pregnant when they didn't intend to. Adultery and pre-marriage sex has just become part of our everyday lives. It's all around us. And it's especially difficult for teenagers like myself. Us teens are sexual by nature. We always have been and we always will be. As long as I've known girls, I've always tried to impress them, many times failing and making an idiot of myself, but still always trying. So as I got older, the type of things that I and the boys around me would do to get girls' attention would keep moving to the next level as we grew older. As us guys get older, the pressure starts to shift from impressing girls to impressing our guy friends. We're always trying to one-up each other with girls, and eventually that can lead to sex and things that God commands us not to do. Sexual fantasy was part of my life from the time I was in middle school. I struggled at school. I felt anxious and I felt like my parents were always comparing me to my siblings and to other people's kids. In my fantasies, I could experience relief, distraction from my ordinary life, excitement, pleasure, and the illusion of acceptance. It was an intoxicating combination, and I was hooked on it early. Whenever I didn't have that feeling, that rush, I craved it. I chased it through my teen years right into my adult life, I spent literally decades with lust as my constant, consuming companion. But if you had seen my life from the outside, you would have thought I had it all. By my 50s, I was a successful professional, married with two grown kids and a nice house. I was also still addicted to fantasies. For years, I'd secretly looked at pornography. I'd had an extramarital affair, and I'd kept the truth from everyone who depended on me. No matter how successful my life was, I carried shame, embarrassment, insecurity, and fear. I also rationalized, justified, and compartmentalized my behavior. Part of me knew that something was broken in my life, but another part refused to admit it. Well, it's good to be with you if you're uh, just jumping in and 
Together, we're journeying through the season of the church called Lent, which are the 40 days leading up to Easter. And it's a time within the church where we get to spend a little more effort intensifying our, our spiritual walks. We get to spend some more time being introspective and looking at our hearts and seeing who God calls us to be and how we actually are living and where these things are out of line, where there's incongruence. We start to look at what keeps us from this great life that God really desires from us. And as we look within, we begin to see that what's keeping us from God is our sin. It's our sin. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite writers and pastors, says that sin is a multi-layered accumulation of attitudes, actions, habits, emotional assumptions, and wrong-headed ideas that put us at odds with God. Sometimes it breaks out in open rebellion, but more often it works in silence and subtlety. Living the spiritual life requires a perpetual vigilance regarding all this sin baggage. None of us is exempt, ever. None of us are exempt. We see sin is very multi-layered. Just as we feel like we're pulling one thing back we only, uh, to get rid of it, we discover there's something still there, something left. Sometimes it comes out, out in the open. It's obvious, but a lot of the times sin is so subtle and, and creeps around in the dark places of our heart almost as if it was not there. But Lent gives us some space and time to bring this out into the open. And we see that what sin really is, is baggage. Baggage. It's what holds us back. It's what brings us down. It's what keeps us from being closer to living life with God the way that he desires for us. And that's why for the Lent we've uh, decided to tackle some of the deadliest sins, the seven deadly sins, in fact, head on here in our series called Sick facing what's wrong inside each and every one of us. And as we said, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about pride and anger. Last week was gluttony, and, and tonight we're going to be talking about lust, as you might have guessed from the audio presentation earlier. We'll be looking at lust. Now tonight, I don't want it to feel condemning or judgmental or anything like that. I would like for us just to have a conversation, because this is something that I by no means am an expert on. It would be funny to be like having your card as Dave Ripper, lust expert. I'm not sure if that's what I mean. Now, this is something that in parts of my life I've really struggled with, and I've been there, and I know the shame, the guilt that comes along with it. Sometimes that inability to feel like, can I ever beat this? And so tonight we want to just explore and think about what lust really is, why we lust, and then how we can overcome it. Because my belief is that God wants a freer life for each and every one of us. I believe the Christian life should be the freest life that anyone could ever live. And so we want to help us find hope together for what God wants for us. And I think that's a life freed from lust. Now before we begin, I just want to make one caveat. While we're mainly going to be talking about the right and proper place for our sexual fulfillment, that's mainly what lust deals with here, and that proper place for sexual fulfillment is marriage. I want all of us in this room to know, whether we're married or single or wherever we're at in our life stage, that you can have a fully alive, fully human, fully content life, even if you never get married and never have, and never have sex. Your life can bring God great honor, and you can find lasting meaning, joy, and contentment, 
even if sex is not a regular part of it. Jesus never was married, lived a perfect life, was fully alive, and this was not an aspect of his life as, as we see. So I just want us to be, all of us to be clear about that, just on the front end. You can have a fully alive life with Christ and not be married. So let's begin exploring what lust is by looking at some of Jesus' famous words from the subject. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he has some very, very famous words, frightening words, jarring words, but important words because this issue gets at our very hearts about what could and should be in our lives. So let's begin with Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery. Here Jesus is quoting Moses. He is the new and greater Moses, trying to lead uh, his people and us to a greater freedom than even Moses led the people out of Egypt with. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, which is any sex outside of marriage whatsoever. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I can distinctly remember reading this passage for the very first time. I was 15 years old. I was just exploring the faith. I was not a believer, and I basically made a commitment. I felt Jesus tugging on my heart that he was real and I should follow him, but I wanted to find out for sure, is Jesus actually who he said he is? So I made a commitment. Freshman year of high school, I'm going to read through the whole New Testament and just see if this is legit. And so about day three into this reading plan, I came upon this passage, and it scared me like you would not believe. It shocked me. I thought, wait a second, how have I not known to this point that fantasizing or imagining all these sorts of things that were happening in my mind were wrong? And then it went on to say, gouge your eye out if you're doing this. <laughs> Cut your hand off. I just looked, uh-oh, I like my hand in my eye, you know? <laughs> and I thought, well, what in the world's happening here? Let's first talk about this idea that Jesus kind of adds almost or fulfills what the Old Testament's talking about here. He says, don't just commit adultery, but he says anyone who, uh, who, commits uh, who looks lustfully upon a woman in, in uh, his heart commits adultery. Well, it's not just about our externals, about getting them right, about having good external behavior. Jesus was trying to counter what the Pharisees were doing. They had all the right behaviors. They did all the right things out in public with their external lives, but inside their hearts were far from God, and God deeply desires our hearts to be with him. He desires our hearts to be in a position that we can receive what God desires for us, that we can live in close, intimate relationship with him, knowing him personally like we know the closest people in our lives. And when we lust and we fantasize and we think about all these other things that give us instant gratification and self-gratification, they keep us from God. They distance us from him. And so God says, your heart is so important to me and I want to be close to you that you should do whatever it takes to make sure you don't do this because I don't want your heart to be away from me. So should we literally cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes? I think Jesus is using hyperbolic language here, kind of exaggerating to make his point that you should do whatever it takes 
to get rid of this stuff from your life. It's that important. Your heart and being in a relationship with mine is something I desperately want, and it's what I desire for each and every one of you. So do whatever it takes. So what is lust anyways? What is it? As I reflected upon this and thinking about this message, here's the definition I came up with. Lust is self-indulgent desire that dishonors others, disregards God, and reduces you. Sin is self-indulgent desire. Using that self-indulgent language means that it's like we just allow ourselves to be given free reign to whatever we feel like doing. If I feel like if it's going to feel good, then I'm going to do it. It's kind of that self-indulgent desire that it dishonors others. As we'll see, it dehumanizes people and makes them less than who God has made them to be. It robs them of the inherent dignity that is a part of each and every person who's living on this earth. It disregards God. It says, God, what you want for me is not the best. I want what I want for myself. And then it reduces you. And we'll talk some more about that. But I want to tell just a personal story about someone I know in my family who has a lust problem. And that's my yellow Labrador retriever, Howdy. <laughs> I just discovered this yesterday. Uh, I didn't know it was such an issue, but Howdy has a very lustful relationship with our mailman. Now, most, most owners of dogs fear that their dog's going like, to try and attack the mailman. I fear that my dog is lusting after our mailman. Now, our mailman is a great guy. His name is Dave. So, of course, he's a really amazing person. But Dave brings treats with him all the time, little milk bones in his left pocket. And so he always parks his mail truck right outside our house, and Howdy starts to salivate. It's like Pavlov's dog here, you know. He's just drooling, oh my goodness, you know, here's this guy. And he comes out of the house, and, and he runs right for Dave. And Dave always wants to pet him, but Howdy isn't really interested in, like, having a relationship. Howdy is just interested in Dave's treats. And so he's just going right for that one part of his body, right here where those treats are kept. And he's after him. And sometimes, like, I'm trying to yell at Howdy, come on, Howdy. No, listen, listen, listen. He doesn't. He just wants those treats. He's insistent until he gets what he desires. Howdy is lusting after Dave. And then Dave, yesterday, I was out with the dog, and Howdy typically is listening to that voice control, you know, from me. But Dave was ended up being on a different part of the, the street, and Howdy saw him. And instead of listening to me, Howdy just runs off at Dave. I mean, he was disregarding, who's God in this story? I'm God in this story. He's disregarding me because I'm his alpha. You know, I'm not the alpha and omega. I'm just his alpha. And he's not listening to me, goes right for Dave, doesn't care about knowing Dave, just wants Dave's treats. And Howdy, by the way, He's actually a pretty good dog. He's a therapy dog. He, can, he works with my wife sometimes you know, in her counseling uh, world. And Howdy instead, Howdy, instead of being this kind dog, just becomes like this animal. You know, he's like, ah, treats. So Howdy has that lust issue. And this way, Howdy dishonors Dave, the mailman. He disregards me, his, his alpha, not God, lowercase God. And he reduces himself to becoming this beast instead of this lovely, cute, yellow lab. So where did I get this definition? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here Paul addresses this issue of lust very directly here. And this is a letter written to a group of Christians much like us, struggling with issues much like we struggle with. And here's what Paul writes. Finally, brothers and sisters... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God as in fact you are doing, 
you should do so more and more. So what's Paul's desire for these people that they would learn to discover what pleases God and then live in such a way that God would be pleased by their lives? For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Let's just pause there for a moment. A lot of us are always wondering, especially if you're in high school or a student or in college, or even if you're older, we always wonder and ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Like, what on earth does God want me to do? There's like a zillion choices out there, so how am I supposed to figure out what God wants? And we feel all this pressure to have to make a right decision. But let me tell you, here's what God desires for you. Your sanctification. And that's just a big, fancy way of saying that God wants you to be fully mature in Christ. He wants you to be just like Jesus. That's his ultimate aim. That's his ultimate hope for you. And so if you want to discover what all those other things are in your life, but you're not pursuing that wholeheartedly to be like Jesus, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. It's going to be a much tougher struggle for you. So what's God's will for your life that you would become like him? Let's read on. That each one of you, uh, sorry, for this is the will of God, uh, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. The word in Greek here for fornication is the word pornia. Guess where, what, what word has come in our language from that? Pornography. That each one of you would know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So we're talking about lust here, and, and we're just finished up 1 Thessalonians 4. And we said our definition again of lust, it's self-indulgent desire that dishonors others, disregards God, and reduces you. Let's talk about how it dishonors others. Here in verse, uh, in verse 5, we see that when we lust toward other people, we exploit them. We exploit them. It dishonors others. Sex is far more than mere skin on skin. It's inseparably connected to our spiritual lives, which is why it must not be pursued in such a way that it avoids commitment or avoids intimacy. Sex without commitment and intimacy, it will leave you lonelier than ever. And the commitment that we're talking about where sex is fulfilled in its ultimate way is in the context of marriage. Now, while sexual drives can be really strong, marriage is strong enough to fulfill them. It's strong enough to contain those drives. And it is strong enough for you to have a fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. But when we say to another person, and here's where this dishonoring them piece comes, when we say to another person that I want you to satisfy my sexual desires, 
but I do not want you as a covenant partner in marriage, we're basically saying to them, I want to use your body for my pleasure, but as a whole person, I don't want you. I don't want you. That's how lust dishonors people, people made in God's image. Lust dishonors others and it disregards God himself. The scripture begins by challenging us to live a life that's pleasing to God. He wants his life with us to be a life where we grow up in Christ. But when we say, I'm going to lust after these things, and I think I know what I want, we disregard what he wants. Kind of like how Howdy was running down the street when I'm yelling, Howdy, Howdy, which only sounds very ridiculous to yell out Howdy, you know, in public when it's your dog's name. But anyways, if, even as he was disregarding me, we disregard God in that way, and it's ultimately not for our good. Lust disregards, uh, dishonors others. It disregards God, and it ultimately reduces you. It reduces you. It reduces your capability for enjoying life at its fullest, the good, true, and beautiful life that God desires, and it causes you to settle for something far less. It reduces you to your own wants and desires and cravings. And the thing about appetites and cravings are they're never enough. You get one fulfillment, and then pretty soon you're hungry again, and you want another one, and you want another one, and pretty soon you're just a slave to what you want. And when you treat people like they're less than persons, you become less of a person yourself. Let me just illustrate this with the story of Jacob and Esau. This is from Genesis 25, if you'd like to turn there. But it says, once when Jacob, the brother of Esau, was cooking some stew, his brother Esau came in from the open country. He was famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom, uh, meaning red. He was this big, red, hairy guy, almost like an animal. And Jacob, his name means deceiver. And along the way, <coughs> excuse me, he saw that Esau was someone who was easily given to his whims and to his wants. And so he sees a way that he can get the upper hand on Esau because he's going to exploit his lusts, his desires for what he wants now, for instant gratification. And so Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. His birthright was an incredible thing. It was uh, a part of the culture that meant Esau was going to be getting a great inheritance from his father, and he traded this great thing, this lasting thing, for just a momentary fix. And this is what lust does to us. It makes us think that something that can only last for a second can be so good, whether it's red stew or pornography or a hookup or whatever it might be. And eventually, it only leaves us hating what we just have done, just as Esau despised his birthright. I hope you catch this tonight. Lust does not deliver. Lust does not deliver on what it promises. It promises big things, but only gives very small things that don't last and ultimately leave you more upset. So lust 
Lust is this self-indulging desire that dishonors others, disregards God, and it reduces you. Esau's life was so reduced by his instinctual givenness toward lust. But there can be a better way for all of us. Let's ask the question, why do we lust, in fact? Why do we lust? Because we can uncover why we do this, and we can maybe make some progress toward understanding how we can overcome this temptation. Let me just offer four quick things. Why do we lust? First, I just wrote down adolescent biology and curiosity. I remember I turned about 13 years old. It seemed like my mental thinking was overpowered by like these physical, biological feelings that were coming up, and they almost tried to overpower you. And I felt like it must be right to do these things because I feel like this, it's like overpowering me and overtaking me. And that can be something that leads us down these lines because it just seems like it's going to feel so good that we should do it. But I would encourage you guys that we can't trust our feelings all the time. We can't trust them. They can give in to things that ultimately lessen us. And so we have to remember that what God wants for us is best. And will we trust him? Will we uh, follow him even when we're curious about what's out there, about experimenting, all these sorts of things? There's some things that are just worth staying away from and trusting those uh, who love you like we do here in this room. It's not worth it. So that's one of the first things. Biology seems to take over for a little span of our lives. Secondly, pressure. Pressure, especially in school, with locker rooms, sports teams, conversations. As one of the testimonies said, there just seems to be pressure everywhere to be doing this. All of us have that fear of missing out, that if I'm not doing this, then I'm going to be the only one, and I'm going to be strange, and I'm going to be looked upon differently. And that pressure can lead us to doing things we might not want to do. I have friends, and I know people that have completely continued uh, to, to remain pure their entire lives. I, I have somebody I know deeply who the only person she has ever kissed is her husband. And she is a beautiful, godly woman. It is possible to wait on that. Maybe you've made mistakes along the way. That can certainly be redeemed. But if you're at the point where you haven't gone there yet, don't go there. Trust what God has for you. So that pressure can be a big thing. The third thing I wrote down is just the God of self. That we want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and we want to do that now. And we think pleasing ourselves is what is ultimately going to give us great fulfillment. This is kind of the philosophy of hedonism, that the pursuit of pleasure is the highest aim. And that just falls short, as many of us know. And then just the last reason I think we lust, and this is one that we don't always talk about, it's just that a lot of us find a deep amount of emptiness and discontentment in our lives. Or boredom, nothingness, numbness. Back in the 20th century, there were two leading psychologists, Sigmund Freud and then Viktor Frankl. And they had different views about what ultimately drove a person, like what were their innate desires. And Freud said that a person's ultimately driven by the pursuit of pleasure. And that's what it's all about, this, this, these sexual drives for pleasure. But Frankl said, that's, that's not right. That's not right. What ultimately drives somebody is this search for significance and meaning. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to count. That's what drives us. And I think Frankel was more right than Freud. But here's what Frankel writes. He says, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. When a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, 
They distract themselves with pleasure, which I think is what leads a lot of us to lust, a lot of us to, to hook up, a lot of us to do things we might not ordinarily or ever have wanted to do. So those are the whys. But how can we overcome the sin of lust? And I just want to spend our last few moments talking about this. How can we overdo it? How can we, how can we, how can we overcome it, I mean? How can, we, how can we defeat this and not let this emptiness and this discontentment rule in our lives to cause us to do this? And, and one story with that, we have a good friend in our town we've been getting to know, and he recently just kind of confessed to us that he had a girlfriend of, of many years who he wanted to marry, and she ended up cheating on him, and he just hit rock bottom, absolutely devastated, 20-something person, and, uh, and he told us, all of his friends said, you know what you need to do just to get back at her? Just hook up with some really hot girl. That was their advice. Not a Christian guy. And so he did, and he confessed to us just uh, a little while ago that the weeks after that were the absolute worst in his life. He never felt worse. That lust, that desire just didn't satisfy. And so we don't want any of you to turn that route either. So let's look at how we can overcome this sin of lust. So far, we've been kind of building a chart in our series here that talks about what vice we're looking at, what corresponding virtue goes along with it, and what healthy habit we can kind of implement to help ourselves overcome the sin and live out the virtue. So we've talked about pride, and we say the counterpart to pride is humility, and the way that we can develop greater humility is not by telling everyone that we're really humble, because that doesn't work, but uh, it's through worship. And we talk about anger, and the lively virtue with anger is righteousness, and that we can become more righteous through prayer and what God does through us. Last week, we talked about gluttony, and we see that the lively virtue is moderation, and we developed a healthy habit of feasting and fasting to get that. And we're actually going to see feasting and fasting plays a big part with overcoming lust as well. But tonight, I'm going to argue that the corresponding virtue to lust, you might have guessed this already, is love. It's love. While lust tries to devalue others for its own end. Love is about willing the good of another, putting the the best interest of someone else ahead of yourself. It's love. And we'll talk about feasting and fasting as a healthy habit. Let me just make a couple other comments before that, because this is a tough one to just reduce to like a little chart. This is a big problem, and a simple solution doesn't quite work. So first, a good healthy habit could be confession confession. If this is something that's happening in your life and you've never talked with anyone about it, when you confess it openly and put it out there, you cast light on a really dark part of your life, and that darkness won't stay that dark forever. You weaken the darkness's grip on your life when you expose it, when you talk about it. A good friend of mine from back in Colorado, he, he had a very major sexual addiction Uh, cheated on his wife with multiple women, huge porn addiction. And he ultimately says that he was accepted and he was forgiven by his wife and he's freed from it. But he said, here's the big thing he took away. You cannot fully accept acceptance until you're fully known. You cannot fully accept the acceptance of God, the acceptance and forgiveness of others if you've done these things until you're fully known. So reveal all of it. We have our Celebrate Recovery program here that meets Monday nights, which is a great place to start that if you haven't done that. It starts at 5.30 tomorrow night. So confession is big. That will free you in a way like you've never never felt. 
And then secondly, we need to put up just some, some basic boundaries. I mean, we need to be wise people. So there's just some bad things out there that we need to make sure we protect ourselves against. Not getting on the internet at late hours of the night when we're weak. Making sure we have filters if that's something that really, we're really given to. One of the boundaries that I like to talk to just with, with young adult men who I work with a lot is this simple principle. Refuse to take a second look. Refuse to take a second look. We can't avoid a lot of first looks no matter how hard we try, whether it's at the gym, whether it's at work, whether it's on the internet, anything. Sometimes we just catch a glimpse of something and it catches our eye. We can't help that, but we can help if we continue to look, if we take that second look, because that second look starts to plant seeds of, hmm, it starts to get inside of us and it starts to grow up and become something bad. You've probably heard the old adage that says, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a life. So don't take that second look. Put up that boundary because that second look is like sowing a thought and as you sow that thought, it's gonna reap an act and that act, sowing that act is gonna reap a bad habit. And pretty soon you're down the wrong path. So refuse to take a second look. But let's get here this idea that Tim, he talked about greatly and, and did a great job of it last week of talking about fasting and feasting. Now, why is that a helpful thing? Well, first, if we really want to overcome any major sin problem in our lives, including lust, here's, here's the best thing I've heard. You have to become the kind of person who would easily and routinely not have any taste, not have any appetite for lust. You become the kind of person who just wouldn't even want that. It's just like, I have something that's so much greater that lust doesn't even look that attractive to it. You have to arrange your life in such a way that this wouldn't even be that tempting to you. Imagine your life right now if you were the kind of person who wouldn't even feel temptation toward this in any significant way. What would that life look like? And I think some of the ways that we can do that is through fasting and feasting. So let's talk just a little bit about that. Now, there are two major types of sins uh, that we can sin and the ways we can do it. The first is a sin of commission. It's doing something wrong that we know we shouldn't do. And then we have sins of omission. It's when we fail to do what we know that we should do. Sins of commission are doing things that we shouldn't do. And then sins of omission is when we not do things that we shouldn't do. Now, we have two types of disciplines that are helpful, that help us do what we can't do by direct effort. And these are disciplines of engagement, things that you do, like prayer or Bible study or fellowship, and then disciplines of abstinence, things that you don't do. Disciplines of abstinence are things like silence, solitude, fasting. Now, these sins of abstinence, what they do as they strengthen your not doing muscles. They help give you the strength to be able to say no to the things when you feel like doing them. So lust is a sin of commission, doing what you don't want to do. The way that you can overcome that is by practicing disciplines of abstinence, which strengthen your not doing muscles. Fasting is a great one of these because it deals with our appetites. We want something and we want like that red stew. But if we say no to food for a certain time, it strengthens our abilities to say no to things when we really want them. But corresponding then with fasting is feasting, which I don't know about you, I find feasting to be a lot more fun than fasting. Anyone else kind of agree with me? But they're both equally important. And so feasting 
Instead of just avoiding these things, we want to feast on something that's so much better than what lust could ever deliver. Feasting on the goodness and beauty and greatness of God and what he's done. Enjoying the beauty of his created world. Enjoying just the richness of great community with other people, free from all of that stuff. Enjoying and the beauty of God's redemption of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We want to feast on that because it's so good. The fasting is saying no to the lesser things of this life so we can say a stronger yes to what Jesus has for us. We feast on him so that this life with him, which is so much better, so much more fulfilling, makes lust and all these temptations look like crap in comparison. Aaron and I, we got married almost seven years ago, and my wedding day was probably my favorite day of my entire life, for sure. I'm not just saying that because she's sitting here in the audience. I would say that no matter what. Uh, but when Aaron was walking down the aisle, I just lost it, like emotionally. Like, I was bawling in tears, just welling up. It was crazy. I was like, what is happening right now? And uh, my arm was shaking. My best man's like, dude, what's happening, man? You know? And people ask me, why, why were you crying so much when Erin was walking down the aisle? I mean, she looked great, that's for, that's for sure. But I said, you know, she was walking down the aisle. I started to, to think about all the other women in the world, 3.5 billion other women, and I started to feel really sad for them because none of them <laughs> were going to get to marry me. Because when I was saying yes to this woman to be my wife, I was saying no to everything else, to every other woman. And those no's weren't hard to make because this yes was so good. And when we fast from these other things and feast on Jesus, we see that the life that he has for us is so much better, so much greater, so much richer than anything that we could ever come up with on our own, that we would easily be able to say no without any hesitation to all those other temptations out there because this yes is so good, it's so wonderful, it's so beautiful, and God's inviting you tonight to say yes to him, to say yes to the life that he desires to, with you. And that's the kind of life that helps you overcome any sin or lust because the life with him is so much better. We're going to sing a song in just a few moments that's called Fast From, Feast On. Fast From, Feast On. And I love this song. Uh, so I've kind of thought about it. It's almost like Fast From, Feast On. Fast From? All right. Hopefully you remember that. Fasting From and Feasting On. And here's how the lyrics go. Fast from the swelling darkness. Feast on the power of his light. Fast from discontentment and feast on the joy that he brings. Sustainer, protector, the well of life. My helper, my comfort, the bread of life is you. Fast from the fear that haunts us and feast on the power of his might. Fast from the trap of judgment and feast on all that's been redeemed. Jesus is challenging us tonight and inviting us to fast from all this stuff, all these lusts, all these things that are self-indulging desires that dishonor others, that disregard God, and that ultimately reduce you so that we can say a better yes to what he wants. That's the invitation for all of us tonight. Let's pray. God, Thank you so much that you invite us to something better than we could ever want for ourselves. 
God, please forgive us for how we constantly choose lesser things that cost us to see others in a way that is dehumanizing and reducing. Lord, please have mercy on us and forgive us. Lord, we ask for your, your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you do have mercy on us because of your abundant mercy and steadfast love. I pray for any of my brothers or sisters here tonight who just need freedom from this. If that's you, I invite you just to open up your hands to the Lord and just imagine him, imagining him lifting this from you, freeing you from the weight that so often boggles us down. And may you run and choose and commit to run toward a life of love. Life with God for others. A life that never misses out. So thank you, Jesus, that you constantly make this available to us. And we desire it above everything else. And we pray this in his great name. Amen.